Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. I've got another great episode for you this week. I feel really excited about so many of the guests that I've had on recently and that I have scheduled to speak with over the next few weeks and I'll be releasing over the coming weeks and months. And today is most definitely one of those guests who I'm really excited about. His name is Philip Goldberg and he is the author of American Veda, which those of you who are interested in yoga and meditation might already know about it. It's already become really a classic since it was released in, I believe, 2010, where he talks about the influence of Indian thought on the West and how it really happened not just in the 60s when we thought about it, you know, coming with the Beatles and and sort of the hippie and counterculture movement, but it goes all the way back to sort of unexpected sources to Emerson and Thoreau. And it, it really is a must read. I would can't recommend it highly enough. And today we're going to talk about his new book, The Life of Yogananda, the story of the yogi who became the first modern guru. And so had a fascinating conversation with Phil, and I'm going to segue to that shortly. But before I do so, I just want to invite the audience's feedback around a particular issue. So I want to I want to share something about what's happening with this podcast and really invite your input. So as many of you know, especially those of you who have been listening regularly to the podcast, that I have a Patreon page and my goal is to finance the cost of the podcast through Patreon rather than ads. And, and I prefer doing so for a number of reasons, which I've talked about before on the show wanting to keep not take any kind of money and you know possibly when you talk about controversial topics at some point maybe the advertisers don't like that and there are a number of reasons but i have to say in many respects though i i really do like patreon and i am going to continue to use it and that is my goal is to get uh, funding through that rather than ads and i i hope to receive growing support as the podcast grows you know, I, I feel a bit conflicted over really how to use it most effectively. So different people use it in different ways, you know, and I have no doubt, and this is what Patreon says, that when you have different levels of rewards, it incentivizes people to be more engaged. And that makes a lot of sense. Now, people do that in a number of different ways. Some people do that in the form of bonus content. And I'm still open to the idea of offering bonus content. Part of what I've done recently, and once again, I got this idea from other podcasters, is offering a very large chunk of the show, which is to say, in my case, it was usually about the first hour for free and the remainder to people on Patreon. And I like that idea for a number of reasons and to people who you know, I considered some of the criticisms, but I thought, you know, it's still offering an hour of the show for free, you know, and if you don't want to give, and if you're just not at the point where you're not ready to commit, that's fine. It's still an hour of the show for 
free that you've received. And perhaps in the, in the future, if you want to listen to more, you can give for you know, a very low rate, $2 a month or 50 cents an episode and get access to that information. That said, I've started to feel a little bit conflicted about doing so for a number of reasons. One, while all of the conversations that I have on this show are really trying to promote conversations around, you know, mental and physical health or about spirituality, things that can be a benefit to people. And that's true for all conversations. Certain talks that I've had feel particularly pressing. For example, the one I did on addiction and mindfulness. That is the reason I did not release part of that on Patreon. I I released the whole thing to the public because I thought if anyone is listening to this who's struggling with addiction or as a family member struggling with addiction, then I want them to have access to that information. But as I start to record more of these conversations, I do realize that that is the case for certainly not all, but many of these episodes. And so I would hate to, part of me feels that conflict about not being okay with offering the whole thing when this information could have been really useful to people. Number two, I would say that, you know, I do view this as I'm torn between wanting to balance like the practical cost of financing the show, such as I outsource the production of it, which costs about $250 a month uh, because I want the audio quality to be really high for people because I know how important that is as a listener of podcast to myself. And I think it's totally reasonable to find sources of financing those costs. At the same time, this project really is for me genuinely an offering in a form of, of karma yoga. It really is something that I want to do as an offering. So I do feel conflicted about, I guess, not offering the entire episode to people. Not You might say, how is it different than doing that versus say, just creating a different chunk of content that is quote unquote bonus content? I don't know. I'm not sure maybe there is a difference, but I am feeling that conflict and I do want this to be an offering. Yet I also recognize that, you know, people do respond to incentives and that includes me. And and practically that's part of why I thought, you know, people might be need that kind of incentive, you know, for bonus content to really support the show. And other podcasters who have done this method have have said that they found it effective in this respect. That said, I do feel that tension and I do feel that conflict between sort of that tiered access between, you know, having to pay extra for the last part of the show and this desire to offer it. And finally, I think the third issue is there's a practical issue as a user, which is it's not terribly convenient to, even though it doesn't take a lot of time, I know we're all used to efficiency and I feel the same way. When you're in the middle of an app, especially if you're doing something like driving, you don't necessarily want to log out, then log back in to a different app and go down and find it and and hit play. And so... There's that issue as, as well as providing a more user-friendly, seamless experience. So for all of these reasons, you know, I'm placing a moratorium on releasing part of the show to the public and the other part to just subscribers on Patreon. And I'm just going to release the entire episode to people publicly. Now, 
I would really invite your feedback on this, whether it's your first time listening to the show or whether it's your regular listener. I would very much value your input on what you think of this issue generally, any of the particulars I've mentioned, what would incentivize you to support the show, what you just think about the issue as a listener to other podcasts. So in general, I I always like to hear from the audience about whether it's topics for the show or whether it's suggestions about formatting, constructive criticism. So that same invitation is always there in addition to your thoughts on this particular issue. I also hope what this means is I'm not going to see, because I have seen a real spike in people willing to support the show on Patreon. And I really hope those people continue to support the show and that if anything, there's an increase and that uh, there's not a fall off because of this, you know? So I don't know. I don't know people's motivations. And I'm definitely going to ask also the people who are supporting me specifically on Patreon, but I want to issue this general call for feedback as well. So I'd value your input highly. You can reach me at hackingtheself at gmail.com. That's hackingtheself at gmail.com. You can also share your thoughts on the Hacking the Self Facebook page or on at Hacking the Self on Twitter. The Instagram handle is at Hacking the Self One. But, you know, for this kind of conversation, perhaps, you know, I would say email or Twitter or Facebook might be best. So, anyways, thank you so much for your input. And with that said, let me now transition to my conversation with Philip Goldberg. A brief note on Phil's bio. Philip Goldberg is the author or co-author of numerous books, a public speaker and workshop leader, a spiritual counselor, meditation teacher, and ordained interfaith minister. A Los Angeles resident, he co-hosts the Spirit Matters podcast, leads American Veda tours in India and blogs regularly on Elephant Journal and Spirituality and Health. The name of Phil's previous book, as I mentioned, was American Veda, and the name of his new book is The Life of Yogananda, the story of the yogi who became the first modern guru. Phil is a great author and just a nice guy and a fascinating person to speak to, and I had a great time talking to him. And I'm sure you'll enjoy my conversation as well. So with that said, I now give you my conversation with Philip Goldberg. Phil, if you can give people just a little bit, even though I've read your background briefly in the introduction, if you can tell folks just a little bit about yourself. Well, I was a child of the 60s. I'm telling you the part of the story that's relevant to the books we're going to talk about to American Veda and the new book. I grew up in New York, in Brooklyn before it was fashionable, and was a child of the 60s. I was a very secular guy, had no interest in spirituality or religion, certainly not religion, and was a social activist and working against the Vietnam War and for civil rights and all those things, And but also got caught up in the counterculture um, spirit of things in the late 60s and was exploring and asking the big questions of life. You know, who are we? What are we doing here? What's this all about? How do you live a happy, fulfilled life? Because I didn't see many people doing it, certainly not the people who were living in accord with traditional values and the traditional ways of that were said to be the, the path to a uh, 
a fulfilling life. So I was part of that generation that was seeking and asking questions. And into that mix came, well, also came drugs, which, you know, for all their downside, had a window opening properties into some sense of that there's more to life than what is evident and what's physical. And then books about Eastern traditions, what we think of as Hinduism and Buddhism, but all the the mystical traditions of the world and the mystical experience, that started to filter through. And I just, it just resonated with me. I don't know how or why, but it just all seemed like there's truth there. And I want to know more. And there's certain things I liked about it. You know, it, it suited my sense that of being an evidence-based person and being rational, uh, even though it was mysticism and spiritual. It was presented as essentially a science of consciousness that you didn't have to believe uh, things that were hard to believe in and that there are methods that come from uh, these traditions, like especially the yoga traditions, meditation practices especially, and they were sort of things you could test and see if they work or not. And nobody was asking you to take leaps of faith that I couldn't possibly do. And so I was drawn to those uh, teachings and eventually became instructed in transcendental meditation not long after the Beatles did, famously, and eventually became a teacher of that method and did that for a number of years, and then started writing as a professional and exploring further and expanding my horizons and opening them wider. And one thing led to another, and here we are all these years later, and we have American Veda, (laughs) <laughs> and now my new book, The Life of Yogananda, whose autobiography of a yogi was one of the initial early influences on me. So that's the summary. I'd love to ask you one follow-up question. I know we're going to talk about more of your life as an author, but I noted that you're an interfaith minister. And I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about specifically how you decided to go down that path and also just kind of even today, sort of what does your your life and your work look life in terms of, of that particular role? Actually, very little. About, oh, I know exactly when it was, because 9-11 happened right in the middle of uh, my program to studying to be an interfaith minister. So it was 17 plus years ago. For some reason, I thought I was a meditation teacher for years, and, and I would you know do public speaking and do some workshops here and there, but mostly I was writing. And people would ask my advice about things, spiritual practices and, you know, their own struggles with various aspects of their inner life. And I thought, well, I might as well get paid for this. (laughs) And what, what if I, you know, were to be a spiritual counselor? And I thought to do that well, I needed some kind of credential, and I should be f- more familiar with all the world's traditions because people would come to me who had interest in Christian mysticism or Sufism and that sort of thing. So I found a program to become ordained as an interfaith minister. And I thought, well, if the occasional wedding came up, you know, I, I would do that. But in, in fact, I've only done it a handful of times, and I did have a spiritual counseling practice for some time. 
But then I got so uh, caught up and, you know, in deadline pressure and these last two books of mine that I kind of backed away from that. So my life in these days, the last couple of years, were totally caught up in the new book uh, with some ongoing, you know, public speaking and seminars and so forth from after American Veda. And now I'm in the marketing business because <laughs> I have a new book out and I'm going to be, you know, do, making appearances and doing online stuff and speaking to people like you and 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 the like. And one of these days I'll get back and pick up uh, one of the unfinished books and start working on those. So it sounds like an author was your, your true calling and you found that. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting because over the course of my life, you know, there, I just never really felt a calling to anything but to be a writer. But of course, as you know, your listeners probably are aware, it's not an easy thing to make a living at. And so every once in a while, I would think I should do something else. I need a day job. And I'd look into it. And no sooner did I go in that, in that direction that I'd get another writing assignment. And after a while, you start to say, okay, you know, the, the universe is telling you something. This is what we say, what Indian people would say is your dharma it is obviously meant to be a person who uh, makes his living and uh, finds his calling in the use of words, telling stories, both in writing and in public speaking. And that's what I do. I have a podcast called Spirit Matters, where we interview leading spiritual teachers and leaders. I take people on tours to India. It's called American Veda Tours. If any of your listeners have been waiting for the opportunity to have a particularly interesting kind of tour of India, parts of India anyway, they can Google that. And so I do those things, but they're all really spinoffs from my books, last couple of books, and they're pleasant and enjoyable diversions. But the main sense of calling I have is, is the life of a writer. That's fantastic. Quite true. And I'm speaking to you now from Los Angeles. Yeah, and you're a great writer. I just, Thank I, you. I really did kind. enjoy your book, American Veda. I think that was like, I know in the yoga world and in just people of interest in, in Indian religions in the West, that was it's was and is a must read. And so once again, I'm conscious of your desire to talk about the new book. And I, I've got but having read American Veda, I have a sense that my answer to your question about your new book, <laughs> where did you get the idea for this project has some sort of genesis in American Veda. So perhaps you can Give folks just a little bit of context on that work before we begin to discuss Yogananda. On American Veda, you mean? Yeah. I meant the Yogananda, but I had an idea that because he was such a big part of American Veda, that perhaps you became interested in this character through that. That's in large part true, yes. But, and we, we have plenty of time, so where would you like to go next? Absolutely. Well, let's just start by, by telling folks a little bit about American Veda, sort of the main okay. argument that you laid out in that book. Well, the subtitle tells you what the book's about. From Emerson and the Beatles to Yoga and Meditation, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West. Now, what do I mean by that? It became obvious to me after the sort of period of my life I described to you before. You know, even in the 80s, I realized that it's not, it wasn't just weirdos like me who got interested in 
things like yoga and meditation and Zen and all the other teachings that came from the East. It was penetrating the mainstream in a way that most people didn't realize. And it, you know, over time, I started gathering evidence for that thesis. So by sometime in the earlier mid 2000s, it was really obvious to me. And an editor at what was then Doubleday had a similar insight and happened to mention it to my agent. <laughs> and the next thing you know, you know, we had a book contract. And so the point of the book, the thesis of the book is that the 200 plus year history of the teachings that were born in India eons ago in the insights of the Himalayan sages that got codified in the Vedas and in the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads, what's generally thought of as Vedanta philosophy, accompanied by the repertoire of mind, body, spirit practices uh, that go under the rubric of yoga in the biggest sense. And there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of such practices. The influx of those ideas and practices from the East, which started in the early part of the 19th century in earnest, has had a much bigger impact on the culture, on various institutions in our culture, different uh, uh, disciplines of uh, professional life, including medicine and psychology and physics, and especially had an impact of changing the way Americans understand religion and engage the, the spiritual impulse that I think is inherent in human beings, but is consciously sort of activated and pursued in some people and increasing numbers of people. So the phenomenon, for example, of people calling themselves spiritual but not religious which is a huge cohort in America, especially among young people who don't want to be affiliated with religion, not necessarily because they're totally atheistic or you know, anti-religion like I was when I grew up, but they have some spiritual impulse. They just don't want to be tied down. They want to be independent and explore. That group, plus the use of practices like meditation and certain breathing practices and the physical aspects of yoga in therapeutic contexts in medicine and in psychotherapy is enormous now. Whereas back in the late 60s, when I first got involved with that stuff, a doctor would have been thought crazy to even suggest it. But now my healthcare provider sends me mailings about, you know, I should meditate every day for stress. And so all this has had a big impact, much bigger impact than we realize. And I traced the history of it in American Beta, showing the key players who uh, either brought these teachings here from India and or the people here who were influenced by the teachers and the literature and internalized it and adapted it and transmitted it in one form or another through their own expertise and discipline. So a whole bunch of psychologists, scientists, and medical people, but also artists, poets, T.S. Eliot, W.B. Yeats, Allen Ginsberg, novelists, 
like J.D. Salinger and musicians, especially the Beatles. When the Beatles started meditating and went to India, it was a big watershed moment. And actually, this is the 50th, this year is the 50th anniversary of that event. And so I traced all that and profiled the major players and talked about the subtle and not so subtle influence, impact that all these teachings have had. Yeah, I think in particular, you know, just sort of when you really trace that influence of Indian thinking on Emerson and Thoreau early on, I mean, that mm. is so huge because Emerson and Thoreau are two of the most influential 19th century American figures. So the fact that they were so directly influence. I mean, the the connection is really yes. quite direct and it made total sense. I mean, in high school, I knew nothing of the Bhagavad Gita or Vedanta, but when I read your book, even though it had been a while since I'd read Emerson and Thoreau, I remember the basic ideas and I thought, oh, now having read, you know, Vedanta and the Gita, that is pretty obvious. <laughs> when I, I started looking yeah. back at transcendentalism and saying, wait a second, that's not a new idea. <laughs> Right. And there were other influences on Emerson and Thoreau and, the, and Whitman and the others, but the influence of India was very profound. And many scholars have studied that. And I, I was beneficiary of their academic work, you know, in, in writing a non-academic story about it. And, uh, you know, you're right. They were among the most influential people in the mid-19th century. But what's fascinating is they're still influential. People, you know, in America, if you're in high school or college, you must read Emerson and Thoreau at some point. And, you know, their teachers may not note the India connection. And depending on what they read, it may not even register on all the you know students who have to read Thoreau's Walden that he talks about the Bhagavad Gita in there and how sublime it is. And all those many people, you know, that's the first they, they hear of it. And then they go out and buy it. But they may not know the influence of India on Emerson and Thoreau, but they're getting the transmission nonetheless because it's in their work, it's in the poetry, it's in the, the essays, it's, you know, it's there. That whole transcendentalist perspective was informed by, especially with Emerson, his reading of the texts from India. And then they influenced a whole lot of other people in the late 19th century who created what's called the New Thought Movement. And those were the uh, seekers and the sort of metaphysical explorers who were the main audience for when the gurus and swamis started to come. So everything fed on each other's influence. So on that note, when we start getting the, the gurus and swamis starting to come and you talk about Vivekananda, you know, really setting it off, but can you sort of, who's your short list of who the most influential, you know, Indian gurus to come over to the West were? And why were they so influential? If you do a page count of American Veda and see how, how many pages were devoted to each of the, or the many gurus and swamis and yoga masters I write about, you'll see that three of them get a chapter of their own. One is Vivekananda, because he was the first and he laid the foundation and his influence is still being felt through the organizations he established in the 1890s. And then Yogananda, who came in the 1920s and had a huge impact because he was the first of the 
major gurus to settle in America. He made it his home, and he he lived uh, 32 years of his life here before he passed. And then Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the most famous of the many uh, gurus who came in the late 60s and 70s, largely because, well, there were two factors. One was the Beatles. You know, he'll probably be known through eternity as the Beatles guru, though he he was many other things. But that's the publicity around that was monumental in taking uh, ideas like Indian philosophy and the practice of meditation and making it a commonly known phenomenon and a a much in-demand methodology. The other reason he's uh, had this a very big impact was because he encouraged scientific research on meditation and the initial studies were done in the late 60s, early 70s at his urging. And when they were published, it was a huge uh, change of people's attitudes towards such things because there was scientific evidence now, not just a bunch of hippies and weirdos, you know, being interested in these things. So those were, to me, the the big three with respect to their impact on the larger society. But there were, you know, many, many others you could say now, given the, the popularity of physical yoga, that BKS Iyengar and Patabi Joyce, who were the sort of leading figures in the that surge, you could put them up in that category too. And there are many others. And people listening now who are devotees of a certain guru are probably screaming at the uh, speakers and, and saying, no, my guru should be up there too. And they, they, and they may be right, but those, as I assess the impact on the larger culture, those are the three I think were most important. That's right. So why then, for example, write your new work on Yoga uh, Nanda as opposed to, say, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi or Vivekananda? What really drew you to writing this newer book on Yoga Nanda? Okay. The short answer is, <laughs> and there's some truth to it. To other writers, beat me to those. <laughs> although I, I figured that might be your answer, had to ask. <laughs> although, although I, I beat them to publication. But after American Veda, and I was thinking about what I could do. Is there any unfinished business in American Veda that could warrant, a, you know, a book of its own? Or what themes, you know, would be my next project. I actually thought of Vivekananda, but a devotee of Vivekananda is working on a biography as his. And somebody else was working at the time on one of uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. But the other piece of it is I was really fascinated. Let me backtrack. I read Autobiography of a Yogi in like 1970. And it was one of the many books at the time that had a big influence on me. And and it had a, I was like millions of other people who read that book and was strongly influenced by it. I never became a student of Yogananda's. I never became a disciple or anything like that. But he was somebody I admired and from whom I learned a great deal. And he was the only one who wrote, uh, you know, a, a candid sort of story of his life. Gurus don't generally do such things. You know, they're especially the monastics, you know, and he was a monastic who chose to write a biography. And so it was charming and appealing. And when I wrote American Veda and I had to research 
his life like I did the others, I became intrigued by the, the human story of Yogananda's life. There are certain things about his life, maybe because I knew we were able to learn about them and the early lives of many gurus or the personal lives are kind of uh, non-transparent. So I became fascinated and thought, well, has anybody written a biography of him? Is only thing what's in Autobiography of a Yogi? Because the, the other piece of this is I realized how much of his life story, the human story, is not in his autobiography. In fact, less than 10% of his autobiography is about the 30 years he spent in America, which is where he did his work and became famous and left his legacy. And very little about what it was like for him at age 27 to come here in 1920 and adapt to this culture as a dark-skinned, long-haired monastic in strange clothing. What was this experience like? How did he succeed to the remarkable extent he did from, you know, speaking in people's living rooms to filling Carnegie Hall and Symphony Hall in Boston and, you know, thousands of people and, and now millions of people following his work? How did all that happen? What was it like to live, be, you know, a stranger in a strange land in the 1920s and then the Great Depression and the war years, you know, coming from a culture that was widely misunderstood and unappreciated and under the thumb of the British Empire? What was all that about? And I got fascinated by it. And when I discovered no one had ever written an objective, bona fide, biography as opposed to, you know, some of his disciples back when he was alive, well, his direct disciples who later wrote sort of little memoirs about life with the guru, but those were more like tribute books. They weren't real biographies. And so I, I thought, well, there's a, a niche that should be filled. And there are gaps in the story, a very interesting story, just from a storytelling point of view. His life was fascinating. And I thought, you know, why not do that? And so one thing led to another, and I did. I think perhaps the most interesting, or certainly one of the more interesting things about the Yogananda to America story is the fact that he came here in 1920. I mean, that is just so outside of the normal timeline that we're accustomed to thinking about. You know, I think if we'd heard the 1950s, we would have thought, oh, that was a bit early. He was ahead of his time. But to come in 1920, and I'm very conscious of this as someone who's taught U.S. history in high school, as you know, I mean, I'm thinking of all the different pieces of American history he was here for, the Roaring Twenties and there's a whole backlash against immigration and an upsurge at xenophobia and isolationism in the 1920s. And then to be here through the Depression and World War II, I mean, it's remarkable. Absolutely right. You are right on target with that. And it's a big part of why I found this, this story so interesting, because I'm, I'm not a professional historian like you seem to have been. But I love history and I love American history and I love exploring it and writing about it. So I'm a kind of amateur historian or a storyteller who dabbles in history. But that part of it is fascinating. It's one of the reasons I wanted to do the book was to put his life in historic context. And not only the American piece of it, 
But even the Indian piece of it, when he was a young man, you know, World War I was going on, the British Empire was happening, Gandhi was doing his work. When he, his family moved to Calcutta in, in, when he was 13, and that was his home until he, well, for most of his young adulthood. And I did research about Calcutta in those days, and it, it just kept reminding me of uh, Greenwich Village. It was the center of learning, of radical politics, of freedom fighters, of re- spiritual and social reform, and you know those influences on him. Uh, he actually, this is a side note, the home his family settled in, which still exists, and I take people there on tours, you could walk to where Vivekananda had grown up. So, you know, this was a, a very important historic and cultural location. And I, I just really enjoyed exploring the implications of that. And ditto, when he comes here, he's first in Boston for the first four years. The home, you know, down the road from Emerson and Thoreau. And their influences was still being felt, you know, in 1920, in the early 20s. And then, you know, what was it like when he goes to New York for the first time and then drives cross country, he took a cross country trip in the 20s when cars were still, you know, first becoming uh, recreational vehicles and then ended up in L.A. where he just had a feeling was the place to be for what he wanted to do and exploring all that the the. Uh, the cultural context of the place, the times and places of his life were fascinating to me. So what was the message that Yogananda brought to America? What were kind of the core principles of his teachings? Well, it's the same as all the others. So in the early chapters of American Veda, I said, well, you know, what was the essence of these ideas and practices that came here? And there are a thousand variations on those core principles of Vedic or Vedantic philosophy and yoga. And his lineage was one of many lineages that they essentially teach variations on those themes. All the gurus had their own emphasis, their own particular uh, methods and uh, ways of expressing the core teachings that were handed down in, in each lineage. But essentially, he and the others were saying, we're spiritual beings. Our essence is uh, transcendent to the notion we have of what our identity is. We are not just uh, our personalities. We are certainly not just our transient forms you know, that we inhabit in our bodies, and that there's a, a spiritual essence to what we are, who we are, and that's the same spiritual essence that permeates the entire universe. So that essential core of being, that if you were looking at it as a physicist, you would have to say is postulated as you know something even deeper than subatomic particles and something more unifying that they have yet to discover but that the yogis discovered by going within themselves and discovering that, you know, the essential true nature that's beyond thought and beyond the mind um, that is, is experienceable through the methods that came down to us from yoga, particularly meditation. And 
that's the core essence. And but beyond that, that's kind of cosmology, and maybe you could even say theology. But the practical application of that is whether you believe, you know, the theories I just laid out. If you do these methods, you connect with a, a core stability and peace and deep within the self, deep within the mind, that has salutary value in, in our lives. It makes us calmer and wiser and healthier and more aware and more content and more at peace. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. The, the philosophy ideas are very different from Western religion or Western philosophy, although there's much overlap in uh, certain uh, aspects of all, all these traditions. But it's, it's in that repertoire of practices where people like Yogananda were able to say, I don't care if you're a Christian or a Jew or an atheist or whatever, and I don't care if you believe in these ideas I'm bringing here from India. But if you do these methods, your life will improve and you will eventually see evidence in your own experience of those ideas. And that's one of the reasons uh, these teachings caught on here. It was very pragmatic. Americans are very pragmatic people. And if something works, you know, they'll give it a chance and maybe experiment with it if it seems to work. And these do. And so it appealed to people who are uh, not entirely content with conventional religion or who uh, had no religious impulse at all, but wanted to look at the world in a different way and experience the world in a different way. And that's what happened. And it's still happening. Yeah. Americans are very pragmatic and, and also, and I would say to Westerners generally, you know, speaking in terms of the language of science is very important. And Yoga definitely can be thought and spoken of. I mean, it is, you know, there's a very strong sense of rationalism that in scientific thinking that underpins much of Indian thought. And so I've heard you talk about pragmatic mysticism and how mysticism sort of sounds like something that's really esoteric and almost opaque, but in fact, it's, it's incredibly pragmatic. And perhaps this could be a good opportunity for you to elaborate on that a bit, because I, I really like that phrase and the way you described it. Yeah, I, I liked it too. And I have since found out that other people have used it as well. I thought I made something up, but <laughs> I guess it was one of those inventions that uh, are obvious and other people use. But what I mean by it is, if you look at the world's mystical traditions. And every religion has a mystical branch. In most cases, it is not the mainstream because, you know, things get a little institutionalized and conservative and misunderstood and, you know, all kinds of corruption enters into the sort of original insights and methodologies on which religion is built. There's Christian mystic, mystical tradition, particularly among the Catholic saints like John of the Cross and others, Meister Eckhart. There's uh, the Islamic mystical tradition, mostly uh, known as Sufism. There's a Jewish mystical tradition that the uh, Hasids and Kabbalists have uh, you know, always maintained. And Buddhism is, and Hinduism and Taoism, the Eastern traditions, 
the mysticism was not buried and lost. It's just the the, the sort of main feature of uh, what those teachings bring. Not everywhere and not every place, but they were kept alive through the, because what mysticism brings is the direct experience of one's own inner nature and the sense, the experience of the intimacy and the connection and the oneness of the individual and the the larger cosmos, you could say, the the, the unity within the diversity. That's where mysticism points and where the techniques of mysticism, the meditative practices that all the traditions have, ultimately lead a person. And so people have recognized that Houston Smith, the great scholar of religion, who I'm honored to say wrote the foreword to American Veda, he used to say there are two aspects of religion. One is the exoteric, E-X, which is the the stuff we see, the, the belief systems, the dogma, the rituals, the the you know the stories and you know, congregations and institutions. And the other is the esoteric, which is essentially what do people experience through their religion or through their spiritual tradition. That's where the mystical teachings lay. And there you find a certain unity. And so in Vedanta, there's this saying that's usually translated as the truth is one and the wise call it by many names, that there's one ultimate and all the many religions and all the diverse spiritual and mystical traditions, if you take them deep enough to their core, to their ultimate experience, they all end up in the same place. And that's where the unity is. So I remember reading about that back in the 60s and thinking, well, if that's true, this is important. This is very important. This is what's called the perennial philosophy that Aldous Huxley wrote about in a book by that name. This is important. Why is it important? Because you can experience it through these practices. And the result is very pragmatic. It changes your life for the better. And so pragmatic mysticism. (laughs) Hence the term. Right. You know, mysticism, there's definitely a mystical or esoteric school within all religions, but it certainly seems to have flourished much more in India and specifically within Hinduism. And we can talk about, you know, that's a bit of a problematic term, but within Indian religions, I'm I'm thinking aside from Islam, because I know there are a significant number of Muslims in, in India as well, but it seems to have flourished more within religions that have originated in India, yes. much more so than say, you know, Christianity or Judaism and Islam, like the percentage of, of Sufis in a particular Muslim country, it's very small and same for Christianity. Well, in, some or, ca- in some cases, it's not only small, but they're outcasts. And and they're oh, discriminating. Oh, they're heretics. Against. Yeah. So You're, absolutely, uh, that's right. So, but you know what's in, what's interesting about that is Sufism in India is you know very prominent and honored, and Sufis were interest, influenced by a lot of the yogis, and the yogis were influenced by Sufism. There was a lot of interaction there because inherent in the Indic religions is or traditions, you know, going back thousands of years, is that there's many paths to these inner revelations and inner awakenings. So when the Muslim invaders came to India, 
Well, some of them were Sufis and they were, you know, they would say, oh, you have this way of doing it. Well, here we have this stuff we call yoga. And so there was a lot of interaction there, despite the colonization. Anyway, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, this, and it's fascinating it's, it, and remarkable when you think of hundreds of years of colonization and migration and all the things that have happened, these sort of ancient core insights of the rishis, the sages of you know India from the jungles and the mountains and the Himalayas, they, they stayed alive somehow. Eventually, you know, the oral tradition is written down and codified. And then, you know, the Upanishads come and the Bhagavad Gita and the Brahma Sutras and the Shiva Sutras and all this vast literature and all these monasteries and all these gurus and all these schools somehow survive handing this wisdom down. And, and sometimes there's, you know, it deteriorates and there's need for reform. And one of those reforms becomes Buddhism. And then one of the reforms becomes Jainism. And so, you know, or offshoots, you could say, that end up becoming religions of their own, just as uh, Christ was a, a reformer within Judaism. And the next thing you know, there's Christianity. And people think of it as something, you know, of its, of, with its own nature and so forth. But you're right. The emphasis on the inner life and these methods for cultivating human development, they were handed down and somehow kept alive and at the core of what we think of as Hinduism and Buddhism, whereas in the Western traditions, the institutionalized, um, hardened, tribal kind of aspect of religion became dominant, and the esoteric stuff, the mystical stuff, was kind of buried and kept hidden in the province of very few people. And one of the interesting things in researching American Veda is the revival of Jewish mysticism and Christian mysticism as a result of the popularity of Hindu and Buddhist practices. So they're being revived as we speak. So right now, there's huge numbers of people in what you would call contemplative Christianity going on retreats, doing Christian meditation, and that sort of thing. And similarly, you know, the democratization of, you know, what used to be very esoteric teachings in Jewish mysticism that were only for a very few people, they're now widely available. And a lot of that is the outcome of the people in the baby boomer generation turning to India instead of their own traditions and the ministers and priests and rabbis saying, hey, wait a minute, don't we have stuff like that? That's right. <laughs> and That's great. So, Yeah, because so many people are still going to need to hear it in the language of their own culture or tradition, even if they have many problems of it, people with it, people do have that sort of attachment and that conditioning naturally to their own upbringing. And so it's nice that these ideas can help to revivify and help them to reinterpret perhaps a kind of damaged relationship with their own religion. Yes. And Yogananda was a, a key player in that because his guru was uh, very well versed in the Bible. You know, they were schooled in British schools and missionaries and all that. Uh, but they had a very yogic interpretation of Jesus and the New Testament. And it was a big part of yo what Yogananda taught while he was here. He probably quoted the, the New Testament as much as he quoted the Bhagavad Gita. And, you know, people I've met 
who had turned away from their, the Christianity of their birth, many of them came back to it because Yogananda or their own guru had a different take on who Jesus was, you know, just as a, a great uh, spiritual master, a great yogi, <laughs> essentially, and his message was compatible with theirs. So many people come back to it in a, a kind of with a new vision. Yeah, one thing I've noticed about several of these Indian gurus, and they do tend to be gurus that are more from the the bhakti tradition. So we were talking about there are absolutely these underlying ideas that are true of all Indian religions and metaphysics, but each school definitely has different flavors. You know, if you're sort of Advaita Vedanta, like a Ramana Maharshi versus a tantric person like Swami Muktananda, I get a feeling that Yogananda's got I remember this. I read his book a while ago, but it, it had a bhakti flavor to it. And is that fair to say? Yes, it is. And not only the book, but his his work. You know, the main thing he was bringing out was the meditative and breathing practices of his Kriya Yoga tradition. Those were the core uh, methods that he taught. But he was also pretty, you know, very bhakti oriented himself. Uh, you know, people these these breakdowns of the different forms of yoga, bhakti, jnana, karma yoga, raj yoga, in reality, most gurus brought in all of those. Even Advaita Vedantists, you know, they would do uh, chanting and kirtan and devotional practice as well. So even if their public persona was emphasized one or the other, they had their emphasis and their orientation, but most of them brought in aspects of all those kinds of methods. But Yogananda was uh, very much a bhakti, more than most people realize, because, you know, it's it's only part of the, the larger pack, package. And when he was here in the 20s and 30s, it was a lot more acceptable to talk about philosophy and meditation practices and that sort of thing it was less threatening than something devotional like chanting sa- Sanskrit, you know, mantras. But he did it. He did it anyway. And sometimes he would do it in English because, you know, he himself, even as a young adolescent, was learning Indian instruments and singing the great uh, traditional chants of India. And then when he came here, he would do many, he translated many of them into English and he, he composed songs of his own devotional songs in English. And, you know, he did more of that you know, than people realize, but you couldn't do too much of it. Although he was, he was really bold. There's this one great story where he's scheduled to, you know, give a presentation at Carnegie Hall in like 1927. And the place was sold out. Carnegie Hall was sold out. And he decided instead of giving his usual lecture and demonstrations, he was going to chant and sing. And he did it for an hour and a half filling Carnegie Hall with one devotional song over and over and over. (laughs) I don't know how he got away with it, but he did it. And so, you know, the the devotional singing and devotional poetry was part of, you know, what he brought out. But for the general public, that was underplayed because, you know, that that could be seen as a little bit more threatening. Uh, especially in the 20s and 30s. For sure. I can understand that. Well, well, one thing he did that was clearly out of genuine belief, but it was also just smart tactically. And I was going to note, not only Yogananda did this, but I've noted that other kind of gurus in the Bhakti tradition, like Neem Karoli Baba, 
also talked about this is they really, they talked about the, you know, they venerated Christ and they talked about the importance and the connection between Christ and Hanuman and Christ and Vishnu. And they really encouraged Westerners, including those who were not, who had sort of cast off their Christian upbringing or even people who were Jewish, you know, to really reconnect with the relationship with Christ. Well, not only that, but in some cases, you, the Jews were told to they should honor their own tradition and, and not discard it. I have interviewed many people. And I know a guy who was just totally, he was raised Jewish. He had nothing to do with religion. He couldn't stand any of it, but he found his way to India and he was living with a guru and the guru said, what's your own tradition? He said, uh, Jewish Judaism, but I don't care about that. And he got, the guru got upset and sent him to southern India, to the city of Cochin, where one of the oldest synagogues and Jewish communities in the world was. And he sent them there and he said, you know, you should honor that. You should go and be part of that. Well, to cut to the chase, 10 years later, this guy became a rabbi. And the same was true because, you know, Jesus is highly regarded, if not revered in India among Hindus and Buddhists and all that, it's more likely that Christians would have that happen to them. I tell a story in American Vader about a guy who was, became a, an ascetic, an American who grew up Catholic, who became an ascetic and was living you know, in the forest with gurus and other yogis. And one day the, the guy who was in charge of the lineage said, what's your own tradition? He said he didn't care much about Catholicism. And he said he was Catholic and he said, do you pray to Jesus? And he said, no way. And the guy slapped him in the face and said, that's your practice now. Every day, you, you know, in the morning after you, you do your meditation and everything, and then you pray to Jesus. And, you know, so there's, there's a sense of honoring, you know, the tradition of your birth, but also to not uh, take lightly uh, the greatness of some of the, the great spiritual masters, regardless of the tradition they're in. So Buddha, everybody thinks Hinduism different from Buddhism, but many Hindus think of Buddha as you know a great uh, avatar like Krishna. Yes, and it should be noted that many Buddhists, including in you know countries like the one I live in, Thailand, there's a real intermingling of you know, Hinduism and Buddhism in many places, for example, in, in Southeast Asia. And so even many Thais who definitely think of themselves as Buddhist and the Buddha is the statue that must be the highest. Many of them will also have statues of Krishna or Ganesh is totally ubiquitous. There's a big statue of Ganesh outside the mall, you know, so really? there's definitely, really? oh, yeah. So oh, there's a real veneration of some of these other deities, Hindu deities, even amongst um, people who are totally Buddhist in countries that uh, have like, I mean, Thailand, the percent of people who identify as Hindu must be tiny, like 1% or something. Yet sure, Hindu yeah. deities have this big influence. So it, it goes both ways. That's fascinating. And the other piece of that is in India, you know, the missionaries, the Christian missionaries come to convert Hindus. And the common story to, that is told, because it's happened so many times, is they speak to some commoner, you know, a person in a village, and they tell him about Jesus. And he said, oh, very good. He seems like a great guy. And, and they say, oh, yes, he's the only one and the only avatar in the one true way. Here, take this picture of him or the statue, and you'll, you'll take it home and worship. And 
pray to it and all that. And they say, thank you very much. And they put it next to Ganesh and Lakshmi and Krishna and all that. And the missionaries go nuts. It's no, 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 no. You have to get rid of those other guys. <laughs> Only Jesus. And that seems, that seems very strange to a Hindu where, you know, all the deities are recognized. And there's this concept of Devata, which is essentially your favorite form of God. Because it's recognized that, you know, God is one, but it, take, it can be conceived of in an infinite variety of forms. Hence, the hundreds of, you know, deities in, and idols in India. And so to them, you know, you tell them about someone like Jesus and, oh, yes, we'll put, you know, he's one of those. <laughs> That's the way it is. Yeah, I love that. You know. One thing I want to ask you about, I noticed this actually in, in the documentary Awake. I, I watched that, which I'd recommend to our listeners to watch that as a great documentary, in addition to reading your book, to, to learn more about the life of Yogananda. And one thing they talked about in there was how Yogananda introduced a monastic order as well, that there were, he had both people who wanted to just be lay practitioners, but then he also wanted people who some of his followers wanted to take vows. And so I wanted to ask you about what was the significance of that, that he introduced a monastic order renunciate kind of tradition into his fellowship in the U.S. and how he kind of struck that balance between monastics and lay people? I'll first say that most of the gurus who came to the West also did the same. They had Swami Muktananda, you know, had made people swamis. Vivekananda had made some Americans monastics, you know, in the 1890s. So most of them did. The difference is that Yogananda did it in the 1930s when it started. And he, the monastic order is here in America, whereas Vivekananda initiated a few Americans, but the monastic order is in India, you know, up the river from Calcutta. And that's where the major training is. And then they, you know, people from there are sent to other parts of the world. Yogananda did it here in L.A. on a hilltop. And um, um, the other interesting piece of that is that his, the very first people he made monastics were women. And that's a kind of break from tradition as well. But uh, the significance of it was, you know, he was a monastic himself. He, he was a vow-taking uh, swami. And he valued that. In India, you know, the, the true Swami, the renunciate, is greatly honored, much as priests were once greatly honored in Ireland and, and uh, Italy for their total devotion to uh, the God, to the divine, and, and to, you know, the spiritual upliftment of others. And it was significant because, for Yogananda especially, because, you know, he had a big mission and he was concerned about its longevity and how it would survive. And, you know, he couldn't, couldn't be a one-man show and he knew he wasn't going to live forever. And so he very early on thought if he created a monastic order, it would help guarantee or ensure the health of his lineage and his teachings throughout the generations because monastics could de devote themselves completely. He understood that most people are householders and they have families and all that. And, and so there were teachings for them and teachings for the monastics, just like all the other gurus did. Many are called and few are chosen to the monastic way of life. It seems very attractive to people when they get on a spiritual path. Oh, I'm going to 
you know, the world is too much of a distraction, you know, relationships, family, sex, all of that, you know, career, money. I'm just going to be a monastic. But very few people are really cut out for it. It's, it's a rare person for whom that's a natural and easy way of life, uh, not easy, but a way of life they're willing to make sacrifices for. And he found some, and their monastic order uh, still exists. And his organization's always been, you know, run at the top by monastics. Some people don't like that. They take exception to it. They think the monastics don't understand ordinary people's lives. But on the other hand, it's endured, you know, now six years after he died, and it's still very healthy. And perhaps one of the reasons for that is he left it, you know, the, the sort of core organizational and spiritual maintenance in the hands of a monastic order. So interesting. Yeah, that just struck me once again, how ahead of the curve he was, you know, and how early he had done it. So I just had to ask that yeah, uh, you know, and there's monastic orders that are very dysfunctional and unhealthy. Uh, and many people who take vows of celibacy and renunciation who can handle it. And so you have all these, you know, scandals and craziness and perverted sort of teachings coming down. Uh, but some of them are very healthy and endure. Yeah, here's part of the reason why I wanted to ask as well. You know, I think the yoga community are starting to become more aware of this, but I still think. What dominates overwhelmingly so many of the ideas in the yoga community are, are forms of yoga and texts that really come from renunciate traditions. And people don't like Patanjali's yoga sutras, and they don't really have an appreciation for the difference between renunciate versus householder paths of yoga. And so this just seems really significant because I think people are starting to catch on to this, but I'm wondering how Yogananda sort of spoke to his lay practitioners and sort of tried to present a message of how people can find transformation, people can find awakening in their daily lives and daily responsibilities, as opposed to having to renounce it and, you know. Well, there's a lot packed into what you just said, Adrian, and it's very, very insightful. Most of the gurus who came here, and I spent a lot of time around Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in the 70s, and he was one who, like Yogananda and most of the others, understood that these teachings had kind of been preserved largely in the monastic orders. Perhaps, you know, there's a million reasons for this, and one of them is, you know, the British and the Muslims who had governed India tried to, you know, destroy some of the traditional teachings. So, you know, they were maintained in monasteries. And, and the, the notion that these teachings had value for ordinary householders and that there are actual traditions and methodologies for householders to integrate a spiritual life into worldly responsibilities, that kind of got lost. And most of them were very cognizant of that. And cognizant of the fact that, especially in, in the West, people are householders, people are worldly. They want to have a prosperous life. They want to have family and, you know, worldly fulfillment as well as inner spiritual fulfillment without renouncing the world because the world, you know, is here we are, and, you know, and, and there's a tiny percentage of people who are cut out for the monastic life. So the notion that you had to renounce the world in order to have a fulfilling spiritual life 
doesn't make any sense. And so most of them were, in a sense, reviving and, and orienting their teachings to people in the world, knowing that if some people wanted to be monastics, they would provide that as well for those few people. So Yogananda, like the people who taught, who came later in the 60s and 70s, was very cognizant of that. And one of the things I find fascinating about the most successful gurus, and Yogananda's a prime example of that, is how well and how skillfully they adapted the traditional teachings of India uh, to the Western way of life. It didn't take Yogananda long to notice that if he wanted people to take him seriously, he couldn't just talk abstract philosophy and enlightenment and higher consciousness. In the 20s, even, even in the 20s, people were, you know, self-improvement was a big deal. You know, there were, you know, how-to books and, you know, how to improve your life. People, Americans especially, you know, they're, we're all about more. Give me more. I want, you know, more happiness. I want more success. I want a better job. I want all this stuff. He recognized that that was going to be what got people in the door. So he started orienting his public talks around practical um, achievements and results. So it would be instead of just a lecture on super consciousness or cosmic consciousness, it would be super consciousness for higher achievement or super consciousness for, you know, build better business and, you know, finding your soulmate. So he was applying the yogic practices to the worldly householder priorities, and that would get people in the door. It made sense. And, you know, it wasn't a corruption and it wasn't a compromise. It was just speaking to people on the level uh, where their interest lies and where their orientation is. Otherwise, you couldn't reach them. And so he was applying the higher teachings of yoga to practical everyday life. And then he would also let them know there was the, the inner practices are, are a way to fulfillment of a higher nature, of a higher level than just the happiness of, you know, getting a better job and having a good family. So he set a template in that regard. Uh, not that the other gurus imitated him, but they, they all also did similar things. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. And I, I want to ask your personal opinion on this as someone who's studied not only Yogananda, but a lot of these great teachers and, and traditions. You know, I think one idea that a lot of people get hung up on from yoga or even through Buddhism is, is this idea of desire. And you could say the same thing for ego too. Oh, now I get it. Like desire's the problem. I've got to get beyond desire. Or the ego is bad. I've got to get beyond the ego. But it's not realistic, right? It's not that's it's not quite the right view. Like you're not gonna get rid of desire. It's part of your biology. The question is how to work with it, how to transform it. So in in your experience, what are kind of the misunderstandings, common misunderstandings of Westerners of, of this idea from Indian philosophies and, and how can they kind of reorient that view? We could do a whole other 90 minutes on that. In I fact, know we I could. Wrote, I know we could. I just wrote an essay about common <laughs> misunderstandings of certain concepts like karma and non-attachment and maya. And the context of my uh, bringing that stuff out is that people often 
misconstrue what those ideas and concepts are in a way that encourages apathy or disengagement uh, from the world and and a sort of indifference to the problems of human life and suffering. And these are total misconceptions. And you're absolutely right when you single out desire and ego, both very true. You know, there's this crazy thing that, and you can see where it comes from. You look at the Bhagavad Gita, for example, and I'm sure the same is true in certain Buddhist texts, where it makes, it sounds like the the, uh, authorities are saying desire is the problem. But if you look more closely, like in the Gita, it says that the realized person, the enlightened ones, they don't have desire. They're beyond desire. That doesn't mean they don't care. It doesn't mean they would rather not, they don't care whether they have a roof over their head or freeze to death. It, It doesn't mean they don't desire food. It means they're not consumed by desire the way all most of us are. It means that you know their fulfillment is not contingent on them fulfilling all these particular desires that arise. It's entirely self-contained within themselves. And it's a description of these higher states, not a prescription. People take it as a prescription and say, well, if I could just get rid of my desires, then I'll be content and fulfilled and awakened. Well, you can't. Desiring is just as long as you have a body, you're going to desire food, you're going to desire shelter, you're going to desire sleep. And if you're a a, a human being with a heart, you're going to desire that your children are, are well and your neighbors are happy and not sick. You know, these are just, what about good desires? People never think about that. There are good desires. The desire to, to ha- make others happy, the desire to heal people. All this is, these are good desires. And, but ultimately, if you try to get rid of your desires, what do you do with the desire to get rid of desires? That's a desire. So then the teachings are there to say, no, we transcend this cycle of desires and this uh, vicious cycle of pursuing a desire, fulfilling it, then getting bored and moving on to the next desire. No, you transcend that. You find the source of contentment and peace inside. And then you come out in the world and your desires are of a higher nature. You want to do good for others. You want to help people. But those are still desires. It's just transmuting them to a higher level. Same with ego. People, oh, you don't identify. They just mean don't be egotistical. But as long as you're an individual and you're Adrian and I'm Phil, we have a individuality, and that's what all the ego means. And you know, you can transcend ego. You can enlarge your sense of self so that it's universal and cosmic and one. But you still have your personality. I, it's one of the great things about doing the Yogananda book was to see. You know, here's a man, you could see him evolving as a spiritual being uh, as you follow his life. And you see that he had a personality and, you know, he had likes and dislikes. He got upset. He had emotions. And, you know, he had an upbringing that shaped uh, the particular individuality that came to be known as the person, Yogananda. You know, you don't stop being an individual because you're become a guru, or even if you become enlightened, they're all different personalities. I've met many gurus. You know, they're all different. And they're fun because they're different. (laughs) Yeah, there's still someone in there, you know, 
people will describe certain gurus like um, I know followers of Maharaji and Neem Karoli Baba have talked about him sort of embodying this kind of emptiness, and which is a very Buddha-like quality. And I think that's true of people who, you know, aren't egotistical, who have a sense of uh, service, you know, but all these great teachers, it's like, you know, they still, you know, get cranky sometimes. So they still, you know, they're still human beings, you know? Yeah, they get cranky. They get right. sick. They, got, right. they get sick and die. And, right. and, you know, they're quirky. When you hear people talk about Neem Karoli Baba or you read about people who knew Yogananda, or, you know, people, I, a lot of my friends, you know, hung around with Maharishi and, and with Satchidananda and Muktananda. You know, they all had that sense of being more and their consciousness was vast and there was something remote and different and indecipherable and ineffable about them. But they were also human beings and they laughed and they got pissed off and they, you know, had fun and they told jokes and they, uh, they liked this food and they didn't like that food. And, you know, they were personalities. And that's what people talk about when they speak so fondly of the guru. You know, they talk about all their, you know, wonderful personality traits. And they're often surprised when they show less than beautiful personality traits. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to who are totally shocked out of their minds to see a guru get angry, you know, and rise up and, and, and scold people and uh, get upset with something or, you know, impatient. And they're supposed to not have those kind of uh, flaws and foibles, but they're human beings. You know, Yogananda was worried about money and, and whether his organization was going to be uh, able to survive and, you know, very often in his life, right up till, you know, his last weeks and months, he, had a, he was running an organization. He had to worry about that. He, had a, he got upset with people who let him down and didn't do what they were supposed to do. So we have human traits and, and we should honor those as well as the, the, the uh, transcendent. That's right. We're all hoping that we want to put someone on a pedestal because we want to think that there's some sort of escape from our own tendency to get caught up in those emotions. So we hold out, there's this possibility. And then when they, they fall short of that possibility, they say, oh, see, even this guy can't do it. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We think that being beyond all that means it never happens to you. They could be beyond all that inside while they're having a temper tantrum. They could be just cosmically witnessing their body and their mouth scolding somebody, and they're totally unattached to those emotions. That's what we can't see. When we hear that, that people can be in a state of consciousness that's beyond all those trivial human emotions, we think they never have them. No, they have them, but they're experiencing them in a whole different way than we do. They're not caught up in it. They're not captured by it. And if they, the other thing about them is, in my experience, and in talking to many, many people, they might do that. And then two seconds later, it's totally gone. They don't, nothing's held on to. They're just, you know, they're back to their equanimity. There's a saying in the Bhagavad Gita, one of the verses says that, the, depending on the translation, the wise, the, the realized ones, whatever, have equanimity in loss and gain, in victory and defeat, in pleasure and pain. Now, that really appealed to me when I read that. 
many, many years ago. And it occurred to me like 20 or 30 years afterward that some part of me interpreted that to mean they don't have loss, they don't have defeat, they don't have pain. It's not what it says. It says they will have equanimity even in the midst of that. And you could say the same about anger or you know uh, other human emotions. They will have their inner peace undisturbed by all the drama that their minds and bodies and personalities are dealing with. That's the paradox. That's the, the sort of both and quality that we forget. We just think, oh, no, they could never get angry. Oh, yeah, go piss them off and see. You'll see, you know, a lion rise up. That's right. They're witnessing, <laughs> but they're not identifying with the emotion. If they are right. in that state that the, the yogis described, exactly, they will be witnessing, they won't be identified with it, but they will still be playing out the human drama and because they're human and that's what has to be done. Let's talk about kind of that final act of Yogananda's drama, you know, where towards the end of his life, you're saying he was even worrying about money. Do you think there was some part of him that felt conflicted about the path that he took. I, I know you you mentioned that, you know, he certainly missed India and part of him wish he would he were back there. But do you think that when he finished his life, he was absolutely certain that this is what he was meant to have done, that he was still optimistic about the, you know, trajectory of these teachings in America? I think so. Uh, it's hard to know for sure. We have I had access to letters, many of which were never published. So I could see the concern about money and the future and the leadership and are they ready and you know all that sort of stuff. But you know the degree to which he what you referred to when you mentioned you know India and the path he took um, is one of the surprising things I discovered was there were many times along the way when things were very difficult paying the bills, the, the personality traits, the uh, attacks from the press and from uh, enemies, the racism, you know, all this stuff, you know, it was just like he just wanted to go off, go back to India and live the, the life of a sannyasi, of a sadhu, a, a renunciate, be in a cave in the Himalayas, walk the Ganges like the others, commune with the divine. That's what he wanted even as a child. But his guru and his lineage said, no, no, you have a big mission and you're going to uh, be a monk in the world. You have a, you know, a task to perform. And the times that he was tempted to give it up and go back to India, uh, he never acted on that. It would pass and he would uh, return to his duties and take them up anew. After certain events happened, it was time to, you know, rebuild, take another, you know, shot at things. And he just kept doing that. And I think by the last 10, 15 years of his life, he was very reconciled to that. His guru had died by then, his father had died, and he knew he had to ensure his legacy. He had to do a few things, and he stopped all the traveling. And he spent almost all of his time in Southern California in, in some of these beautiful ashram-like properties they had. And one thing he had to do was make sure the, the close disciples were properly trained and prepared to carry on. And the other was to create a, a, a body of written work. And so he, he, was a, he was much more secluded the last 12 or so, 15 years of his life. But working very hard 
and he would still give talks and he would still come, you know, at least once a week and, and, you know, speak to followers and all that. And all those were recorded and notes taken and became, were transposed into written form. So there's a vast body of thousands of pages of written work, especially the autobiography of the yogi. That was part of the legacy, and that's what he devoted his uh, last uh, decade or decade and a half to doing. Interesting. So, Philip, on kind of a concluding note, I, I'd love to learn or to know what you learned from writing about Yogananda in terms of how did sort of taking a, a deep dive into the life and the teachings of this great person influence your own view on life, how you relate to your practice, how you relate to other people in your life? You know, I can't say that anything radically changed, it, but it reinforced convictions I had. And now there's a, a living example whose life I'm intimately familiar with now to use as a touchstone. And one of them is, as long as we're human, what, what I just said, you know, life is going to be complicated. It's going to be ups and downs. There's no escaping uh, the occasional pain and defeat and frustration and uh, hassles of the world. But you have to have an inner state that can endure and maintain some sense of equanimity and wisdom and peace in the midst of it. And I saw him, you know, I see that in his life, because if it happened to him, who the hell are we to think it won't happen to us? And, you know, I've recently, for example, endured the deaths of people I loved, and I had to deal with that. And, you know, I, so did Yogananda. His mother died when he was 11. It was a huge thing in his life, had a big impact on his, the rest of his life. He lost a brother when he was a young man, his older brother. He lost others, siblings. He lost his father. And he was very uh, candid about the grief and the, the sadness of all that. And I appreciated that very much because we would like to think we're above such things. And also the spirit of having a, a sense of mission, even if at times you, you wish you didn't. <laughs> he, he knew he did. He knew it was hard, but he persevered. And you probably see that in the life of any human being who accomplished great things. You know, you, you read about whoever. They, you don't accomplish great things without persevering and without suffering setbacks and all that. But we think somehow spiritual people should have it easy and you know, should be above all that. But no, it was hard work. He persevered. He had to adapt to a new way of life. He had to learn new skills. He had to make mistakes and, and learn from them. And all that was very inspiring on a pure human level. And to see it coming from uh, somebody who was a spiritual exemplar and role model was very edifying to me and comforting. And one thing I always knew, it was just again reinforced, that whether you're a person in the world, a person of accomplishment, or you're a recluse, sadhana, the regular practice, the daily practice of you know whatever methods of spiritual a discipline you engage is critical. No matter how much he worked people to, you know, accomplish this and accomplish that, no matter how much he pushed himself, that daily practice, the sadhana, was not to be compromised on. And all that was good. One more thing I'll say. One thing I was surprised about. He's a monk. He was a spiritual teacher, but he was very well informed. You could see, you see it in his letters. You see it in his 
speeches, his writings, his magazine, his organization published. He was commenting about the Depression and the uh, buildup to World War II and the war years and Gandhi and the independence movement. He was not aloof from the stuff of the world. He was engaged, uh, or at least informed and cared, and addressed those issues from his own platform. And I, find, I found that very useful and, I, and I, something I want to you know, make uh, people very aware of who think you know, spiritual people should be uh, disengaged from no, such I'm so things. glad you said that. And it's back to that renunciate versus householder path. You know, it's about one of my teachers who you might be familiar with, Douglas Brooks, from kind of the yoga. Oh, yeah. 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 I've never met him, but yes. He's I, a great teacher. And he says, you know, a lot of these traditions are about checking out. Tantra is about checking in. It's about that commitment to engage with the world. And I think that's a great but, point. You, know, you, you could say the same thing about the yogic tradition and the Vedantic tradition. There are always examples of the people who dissociate. But, the, you know, look, Vivekananda was the great Vedantist and Advaita Vedantist. He led a whole reform movement and his Ramakrishna mission in India started doing you know, social service work. And they've been doing it now for 120 some years or so. And they're very engaged. And there were great gurus who were involved with Gandhi and the freedom movement. So some are engaged and some are not. That's true. Um, and the whole thrust yeah. of the Gita is about engagement. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, go fight the battle, man. You, you, know, right. you can't be a yogi, but then do your job. That's right. Something you said made me want to ask one follow-up question because it is so important. I'm absolutely with you on just how essential the consistency of practice is to keep one grounded. And I'm just curious if you don't mind sharing sort of what your own sadhana looks like in terms of meditation, asana. Well, you know, I, I learned transcendental meditation in 1968, became a teacher of it, and that remains my core practice. It's, you know, a deep form of uh, mantra-based meditation. That, that's the method I was taught and learned to teach, and I still do it. I added others. On an ideal day, and not every day is an ideal day in this regard, because <laughs> we get busy, uh, we do a sequence of asanas and then pranayama and then my meditation, and perhaps follow meditation with some semblance of a devotional uh, practice. But at least I meditate every day. I do that, that form and uh, try to do some asanas and other practices on most days. But thanks for reminding me. I will now get back to doing that every day. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I can let you get to that. But before I let you go, Philip, I just want to give you a chance to let people know about where they can find your upcoming book and your podcast and any other events you have. Well, American Veda, we've talked about the biography of Yogananda, which is now out, is called The Life of Yogananda, the story of the yogi who became the first modern guru. You can find me at philipgoldberg.com and all of my activities are there. You know, If you're in America, I'll be coming to a city near you soon on a speaking tour. And listen to the Spirit Matters podcast. We have some really great people on there, people you're probably familiar with, Adrian. Uh, a lot of really good interviews. And if you're interested in my American Veda tours, you can find that on my website too. So thanks for the opportunity for the commercial note. 
Absolutely. Well, I enjoyed your your book. Like I said, Philip, and I'm looking forward to reading your new one so I can I can genuinely and enthusiastically recommend it to our listeners. Well, thank you, Adrian. Thanks for having me on. Keep up the good work. And if you come to visit the U.S., let me know. I will do. That would be fun. I'll do the same should I come to Kyland. Please do. Please do. Okay. So, thank you so much, Philip. Well, take care. This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash hacking the self. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.